Brian Long has worn a lot of hats, from advocate to programmer to producer. What I've been doing as well is studying international business at George Washington University. What I really am lacking are the hard business skills, the marketing skills, and the uh, art of the deal, as, as our next president, I think, puts it. <laughs> Brian joins us to talk about where the media landscape might be going. The number of staff jobs at newspapers may be declining, and jobs at, at network television are increasingly hard to get and, and centralized in fewer and fewer places. Those skills are in demand in a larger number of places than ever before, and that's just going to increase. Media on the Radio is a podcast that features conversations with media professionals, everyone from creators of media to those who do the marketing and distribution. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. I was wondering if you could just start off by talking about your, your college career and what you majored in, what was your college career like? I went to high school around here in the Washington, D.C. area and uh, was involved in academic debate as a high school student. And I decided to go to school at a, at a school that had a promising debate team, so I chose to go to Emory University down in Atlanta, Georgia. One of the things that I was interested in from the start was media um, and particularly college radio. I was a big music fan, and I was looking for a school that had a radio station. I didn't actually end up studying anything, uh, any uh, media or communications per se, except that I did have a minor in film studies. If you were able to project into the future at the time, your mind's eye in college, did you have like a dream job that you wanted to get into politics or um, what was your, what, what did you see yourself getting into at that point? Honestly, in college, I was, I was searching around for who knows what. I, I really didn't have a clear picture of what it was that, that I wanted to do. I, al- I was always very interested in politics and also interested in art and also in activism, particularly pol- politics from an activist perspective. And at Emory, communications and journalism were all essentially subsumed under an English degree. On the film side, a film major just came about when I was there, and I studied under Robin Blates, who uh, did feminist critical theory of film, and I had her for the majority of my film studies classes, which were, were excellent, but that led me to see the connections between media and and activism and media and society. So that was a big connection. I also got a lot of in, sort of insight into experimental and avant-garde modes of expression. You could really see the connection, particularly in the work of some of the the pioneering video artists in the 1960s, the video freaks and other sort of DIY uh, video makers that, that were able to produce documentaries using newly evolving technologies to document their experience from their own point of view. That's a point of view that really at the time, um, and even today, isn't represented well in the dominant media. Um, to the extent that you can say there's even a dominant media today, uh, it's, there's still a mainstream that I think hews far away from many people's experiences. Have you ever seen, I think it's called The People Chicago? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I have not actually seen it, but I've, I've read read up about it. That And it's just interesting to think about that because... The story I know about it is the actual government of the city was really excited about the movie being made and they thought it was going to be this, you know, this glorifying look at Chicago and and what a great city it is. And then it's from the point of view of all these homeless people and this is what it looks like. 
outside of college, how did you <clears throat> then find your way back to media? During college, I wasn't precisely journalism. It was actually as part of a history degree, but I was doing a senior thesis on uh, the Cointel pro program, the FBI's war against the, the New Left, against the Black Panthers, against the Ku Klux Klan, and, and various other groups that basically J. Edgar Hoover decided to, to do dirty tricks against. Um, so for part of that, for my thesis, I filed a, a series of Freedom of Information Act requests and uncovered some material that, uh, that actually hadn't previously been discovered by academics and uh, pertaining to the COINTEL pro program, actually in Chicago and, and with uh, the murder of Fred Hampton. So documents that I thought that people would want to see. And there wasn't an internet as we understand it today. There was um, some protocols uh, that preceded the World Wide Web called Archie and then Veronica <laughs> um, and, uh, and some different uh, FTP sites, essentially, that you could put documents up onto. And once I got these documents, I imaged them and I put them up there for a different researchers and, and interested parties to find. But then I was in college during the, the birth of the World Wide Web. So as soon as, as the Mosaic browser came out around 1992, then I started, I developed a, a rudimentary first you know, text-only website. And from there, just taught myself internet programming, web programming, Perl and uh, HTML and uh, CGI scripting and, and whatnot. Just because, again, I wanted to, to publish my material or the material that I'd obtained and, and some papers I'd written about it and, and make it available to the world. So from that is how I fell into my, my first jobs was uh, as developing websites and being a webmaster for, uh, for different organizations uh, when the web was, was very young. My, well, my uncle worked for Bayer back when the, the Internet was being developed and kind of put out. And this was before any, any type of skin on top of it where, the, where there was a browser of any sort. And he was a technical writer, and they basically just gave it to him to say, check this out, see, see what you think, let us know, what, you know how you like it. And he never touched it, but his son, my cousin, jumped on there and just kind of taught himself how to use it. He was getting into chat rooms with it was just a blue screen with text that would go up and you had to be a very fast reader in order to kind of chat with anyone because there was no scrolling up. And then when the World Wide Web was actually developed and you can actually go to a web page, I remember one of the first ones was poop.com, which was <laughs> just a, a splash page of all different kinds of poop. <laughs> and it was and I just looked at it and I was like, what is this? This is crazy. <laughs> of course, that's the first we one of the first websites that gets developed. Of course, I don't know if you worked on that that one. No, I can't. I actually can't even <laughs> say I'm familiar with it. But I, I do fondly remember the days of of links and uh, and why talk. You were working as a, a webmaster, and then you got back into to activism as well, right? Eventually, my activism became focused around using media and media technologies to to communicate the the message of different activist causes and and organizations and movements that I, I found myself around because the technology and the the accessibility becomes easier and cheaper to use what was it like to be kind of on the cutting edge of that and then also what was the transition like from that early time until people started to really adopt it and, and everyone needed a web page right well, so so jumping forward to about 
1989, there was a lot of activism that I was involved in around uh, fair trade and uh, around issues of, of labor and um, global justice, essentially, as far as the multinational organizations and, and particularly the, the GATT, which became the WTO. And I became part of an organization called Indie Media that grew up around the, the protests around the WTO in Seattle of 1999 uh, to uh, document the protest, to get out protesters' messages, and to to really counter the what was coming out in the dominant media at the time. You being a, one of few very serious mentors in my professional development, because as you probably remember, when I first came to AIM, when I was hired, I had a lot of enthusiasm um, and I had s some technical chops in terms of sh uh, shooting and editing, but um, really was trained up through a the AIM network and as well as the staff. And I just remember sitting in your office and would just pick your brain. You were probably annoyed, but <laughs> would just <Hardly. laughs> pick your brain about all, all things uh, technical, media, as well as just in getting my bearings as I'd moved from Pittsburgh to D.C. and just learning about Washington, D.C. in general. So I, I really benefited from sharing an office, which I truly believe that if I if we had our own offices, I would not have probably <laughs> developed as much. <laughs> but uh, can you talk a little bit about the actual working as a staff member at AIM and what that looked like day to day and what, what that meant? Working at, at AIM w has been one of the, the most exciting and, and one of the most fun times I'd ever had because... People would come in and talk to me and or to, to all the staff members with amazing ideas. And uh, they had a story to tell or they had an idea of a project or a series or just something that they wanted to share with the world but didn't have the, the technical acumen or the resources uh, or both um, to to get their, their story across. Yeah, I found that to be... The, the diversity is that, that we get through the door at Arlington Independent Media is, is amazing. And not only diversity in background, but also of ideas, just kind of sometimes very out there ideas that <laughs> only some, some of the unique producers here would think up. But uh, starting back where, where we started with the Internet just kind of forming and these, these technologies getting cheaper and cheaper and not only do people have access through a public access channel where, where you're working, but they have their own cameras as well. How did you, did you see a change in the programming? Well, I did. At Indie Media, we were among the first to, uh, to get video online and, and to distribute video online. And during the time I was, I was here at AIM, I saw YouTube start and, and then flourish and get bought by Google. And looking at that, I think in a, in a microcosm, you can see uh, what's happened here in Arlington and what's happened to, to the Internet in general. Because while the tools of production have been democratized and, and moved into many hands, what we have now is, is a channel where everyone is talking to everyone and uh, everyone watches everyone else's cat videos. And everyone has, has their own cat video. And, uh, and, and so what I think what you see is an explosion of voices, but even perhaps a narrowing of, of the discourse 
because of that. We have, I'd say, even even to a degree, an echo chamber. I think there is a movement, too. What I see is people that are savvy that can kind of and get the newest, freshest app. What I find that those people are looking for is somebody else curating content for them, which is kind of funny and counterintuitive to this the whole like you said, explosion of, of channels and all this different content that's out there. What really people want is someone that they can trust, a handmade curation of content that they, that then they don't have to search through all of the, the mess that's, <laughs> that's out there. And, and there still is a, a substantial and, and perhaps even a larger avant-garde of experimental filmmakers and experimental media makers and people who are pushing the edges and the boundaries of what you can do with combined media and the the juncture of storytelling and technology but just as in the the 30s or the 50s or 60s uh, they're gatekeepers to that um, to, to even the awareness of that and I think you're exactly right it's it's curating that and getting the word out of, of what can be done and what can be seen is is the, the real key right now. All of this constantly changes and the landscape changes so quickly, but what you saw with YouTube and the whole idea of actually putting video online and, and make it easily shareable, um, what people failed to recognize is that you have to build a community around it first. Not necessarily first, but you have to build a community for people to come back to your page to watch you. And that's how you, then you're, you're able to to build off of your series of videos and maybe then eventually once they have ad revenue, then you can make money on it off of it. But it was this really took a really long time for that idea to kind of take hold. Um, and then when you have things like Google, which is the 10,000 pound giant um, that has recently released that they can predict what movie is going to be number one at the box office three or four weeks out at a 94 to 94% accuracy, but they don't know what they're going to do with that information yet. And it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, everybody has the tools, but it just goes back to the people that have the most resources to be able to control the information and, and really get the message out there. Do you find that to be true? I I do. However, there is, I think there's there's edges that are being nibbled around, and, and that's one place where I think that individuals and communities, activists, nonprofits, uh, groups of various sorts can really are more able now to uh, to take the same sorts of marketing strategies, marketing tools, uh, promotional uh, mechanisms that that were previously only available to uh, Madison Avenue giants and and use those. So social media does have a sort of leveling effect on that, but at the same time the cacophony has risen to to such a degree that that it's it's made made rising above the rest more difficult, but the tools are available to to do so. And that's something that not only our our individual and small producers wrestling with that's something that I know large corporations and and media companies are struggling with as well. Um, if we can even see that with the way that many uh, many newspapers were slow to slow on the uptake uh, to adopt multimedia and and 
to evolve their multimedia operations in, in a way that, that would be profitable and also practical or practicable by their, by their workers. Now you work at, a, I'll let you describe it, but it's, it's a company that puts out educational content. Yeah, I, I work at a, a company that produces uh, educational media for a, a consumer audience, and we market it direct to the consumer, um, both on catalog and, and the internet, and increasingly a, a large push to uh, to stream that direct to the consumer on uh, omni-channel basis. I'm curious for myself, how much pre-production and, and writing goes and development goes into those products that you're putting out extensive we we do we do substantial testing of of everything that we that we do first to just test to market test it to see that there's audience demand as well as to screen test our talent and make sure that our talent is is good and and appropriate and then a lot of work between our writers and the talent to develop the material for you know in some cases up to two years before we produce our, our product yeah, I was just speaking with uh, Stephanie Misar, and she's she worked for Global News International for a very long t- international Global News companies for a very long time, and they found that the way that in which they can compete is that they focus intensely on making sure that the product is top notch and it's done properly, but also that there is an actual need for the product out there, and I think that that's kind of a tried and tested true method but it seems like since there's such an ability to create that i feel like sometimes there is a lot of creation for creation's sake without one thought to to where it's going to end up or the strategy to to reach an audience do you see any of that as well and in, in or have you seen that in the past i have I, i've seen it in the past and with my own work in fact and that's that's one thing that i've learned over time is that gauging the the market demand for a product and or developing the market for your product prior to uh, release is one of the most critical things that you can do to ensure the success of a product, uh, to, to make sure that it, it hits the market when the market is ready for it. Because I've seen also a ton of projects that have come, come across that are excellent. They're top-notch, well-produced, deep and and well done material but haven't done the sort of market development necessary in order to hit their mark and they they haven't they haven't had the sort of impact that they would have otherwise it's almost like you're you're quantifying what you're trying to put out whereas you know if you look at um the the software dramatica i think it's called and it's screenwriting software that basically prompts you with all these questions about your characters and the scenes and what where are you going with the story you know it's it's basically just a uh question and answer that that gives you clues into to how tight your script is and a lot of people look at that and might say well that takes the creativity out of it but in reality there it's what nine out of the ten nominees for best picture use in in hollywood so when you look at that, as well as creating, you know, um, I remember Food Inc., the the documentary, sure. they found a huge propensity of a person that isn't the the liberal documentary watcher to actually change their behavior when watch after watching that. 
and the, these it's just a, a huge amount of people that would respond to that film that aren't necessarily don't necessarily feel uh, you know akin to the subject matter and so that's why they pushed that film so hard and, and put so much money behind it to to market it so even if you do a documentary film you should really bring on a, a somebody that can crunch numbers for you to, to figure all this stuff out with tight budgets around a documentary film you may think twice about that you know I, I also think that you can you can a b test a, a product into you know, market success but at, at the same time drive it into mediocrity uh, by by reaching just where the market is is going I think you you can sort of find a happy medium between staying edgy enough that you're 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 pulling your audience along with you while at the same time meeting them where they live and and so that's a, a challenge but I'd also say that the the amount of tools out there that you can use the amount of data that you can access and the amount the depth of the tools that you can use to analyze that that data that we have now uh, really permits independent and individual producers to to have insights on on what the market may be looking for that didn't exist even five years ago that's cool kind of almost out of time I wanted to get into what you've been doing the last couple of years which you're finishing up a master's degree in business well, as, as I said, I, I'm currently working in, uh, in overseeing some technical aspects of production at, a, at an educational production company. But uh, what I've been doing as well is studying international business at uh, George Washington University uh, because I think that, that while I have the background in history and political science to have the, uh, the content knowledge and I have uh, the, the technical skills in production that I, I've worked on on my own and then through my time at AIM, what I really am lacking are the the hard business skills, the marketing skills, and the uh, the art of the deal, <laughs> or as, as our next president, I think, puts it, um, that, uh, <laughs> that will uh, really let, let projects uh, meet the, their true market potential. And what have you learned just by you know, going through the master's program, what has it opened your eyes? Have you seen things in a different light? What I've, what I've, I very much so. And what I've learned, and I, I think it may be just a part of the fact that I'm studying business in an international context, is that the media landscape in the United States is is very saturated. But the opportunities for producers outside the United States to make content for American audiences, as well as for American producers to distribute, to, to make content for foreign audiences and to distribute content uh, around the world is where there's a huge, huge opportunity for growth and, and for uh, a lot of, a lot of work to be done. Wow. That's interesting. Five years from now, do you have, as I asked you earlier, do you have an idea of what you'd hope to accomplish or where you hope to, to be? It's maybe not necessarily having a a different job, but um, are, are you looking into your own kind of venture within that media field? I am. I'm, I'm continuing to look at, at leveraging my, my production experience and my interest in, in culture and politics to, uh, to have, have a greater impact, I think, on the, the national discourse. What would you say to a college student that's just recently graduated that wants to get into the media field in any 
form, how how do they get over that that hump of getting the experience necessary to to make a living? It's it's a very hard field to to get into, and a lot of it is first of all, I would say. Uh, you, you should go to where the work is um, because it's a hard field to get into. But if you're working in California, you're working in New York, uh, there's there's more work to be found. But those are also, it's a very, very cutthroat environment and it's a, a difficult environment to find full-time work in. So you really, you, you should volunteer. You can intern while you're doing other sorts of work and get your skills, build a portfolio, and, and market yourself as your own brand. And none of this is, is new to me, but I think, or that I'm, I'm saying new, this is uh, really sort of conventional wisdom. But what I would add on to that is that while you're working in whatever field you might be working in, if you're not getting a job in media right away, that there's a media component and a multimedia component to virtually every field right now and to take skills that you learn in a communications field or that you learn in journalism uh, are really broadly applicable across virtually every industry and and only becoming more so. So what I'm seeing is that while the number of staff jobs at newspapers may be declining and while the uh, the jobs at, at network television uh, are, are increasingly hard to get and, and centralized in fewer and fewer places. Those skills are in demand in a larger number of places than ever before, and that's just going to increase. That's interesting. So the, the analogy would be that, you know, bigger corporations and nonprofits might be looking for a media person that then maybe you wouldn't be working in television directly, but you're working for uh, a bigger organization that, for the first time, is thinking about hiring a video person. That absolutely right, because uh, television, as as we think of it, is is increasingly not even television. It's it's delivered over the top. Uh, it's delivered on mobile screens. It's uh, multi-channel, and it's it's not the network model as as has been known for. 20 some years ago it's that's gone now and so content is is where you find it and that's being created all over the place and uh it's i think you'll find it in every field i'm curious how and i don't know the answer and maybe it would take bringing a couple of chairs of a communications department at a local college to to see what's happening at a, at a local college but my fear is that you're students are going through kind of the motions of of local broadcast journalism for example where you know you you work on the lo- the TV station at university and you hope that you get a job at the local news channel but the same thing that happened to the newspapers and and radio even before the newspapers is that i think local news is kind of on the way out the over budget television stations are what it takes to run a TV channel and a, a whole news team when the millennials and the young people just aren't watching the shows? Well, we, we are. We're seeing that in, in local broadcast news right now. It's being consolidated, and uh, it takes fewer people to run a local television station right now. I, I know you can run control rooms remotely. You can run cameras remotely. You can have one, one, one crew uh, be a, a single person and produce local newscasts for half a dozen 
different uh, different localities on a single set in a single day and not even be located in, in the same place, sort of the, the clear channel slash iHeartRadio model of, of local production. And, and that's already happening. The consolidation and the, and the cutting of, or consolidation of jobs into fewer and fewer roles is, is going on and technology is enabling that. So the, I know the, that anchors, I know a lot of anchors are now doing their own teleprompting with a, with a foot pedal. Absolutely. And I was in a studio in, at CBC a couple last week, a couple weeks ago, and it was a huge studio and there was no control room. I didn't see it, but, but the anchor was talking to somebody and who knows where they were. And there was only two people as crew in the room for this, what looked like a very big production. Yeah, well, two people because the unions are very strong in Canada. and that's i guess what what i'm getting at is that you know it'd be interesting to see to bring somebody on uh that's the chair of a communications department and talk about that that is to say though that that the jobs are still there um as you as you bring the bring control rooms all together but it's moving more into an it sphere uh, where where it's all run over IP. I mean, robotic cameras mm-hmm. run on IP networks is is the name of the game at this point now in in my facility and uh, increasingly I think all over the place. Yeah, for for studio productions that is, and you know the same thing. I think as as soon as the FAA gets their drone rules set, will be seen in uh, in news production as well. Well, any final thoughts about media? I guess my final thought about media would be it, your media diet is like any other diet you follow, and, and you are what you consume, and so you should really put some real thought and consideration into uh, what what media you, you seek out and look for. That's a good message. <laughs> the show is recorded at Arlington Independent Media, or AIM. If you live in the Washington, D.C. metro area and you want to get involved in media production, check out arlingtonmedia.org. There are countless ways to get involved, like volunteering on programs, taking classes, and producing your own media projects. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. You can find new episodes of Media on the Radio. Visit arlingtonmedia.org.